CD3 Against his protestations, she shooed him out into the snow and followed behind him, pulling the door shut and locking it with a heavy iron key which she hung on a nail by the door. The frost had tightened its grip on the forest, squeezing it until the roots creaked. The moon was setting, but the sky was full of hard white stars that made the winter seem colder still. Goody Hamstring shivered. There's an old log over there, she said conversationally. There's quite a good view across the valley, in the summertime, of course. I should like to sit down. Mort helped her through the drifts and brushed as much snow as possible off the wood. They sat down with the hourglass between them. Whatever the view might have been in the summer, it now consisted of black rocks against a sky from which little flakes of snow were now tumbling. "'I can't believe all this,' said Mort. "'I mean, you sound as if you want to die.' "'There's some things I shall miss,' she said. "'But it gets thin, you know. "'Life, I'm referring to. "'You can't trust your own body any more, and it's time to move on. "'I reckon it's about time I tried something else.' Did he tell you magical folk can see him all the time? No, said Mort, inaccurately. Well, we can. He doesn't like wizards and witches much, Mort volunteered. Nobody likes a smart ass," she said with some satisfaction. We give him trouble, you see. Priests don't, so he likes priests. Oh, he's never said, said Mort. Ah, they're always telling folk how much better it's going to be when they're dead. We tell them it could be pretty good right here if only they'd put their minds to it. Mort hesitated. He wanted to say, you're wrong. He's not like that at all. He doesn't care if people are good or bad so long as they're punctual. And kind to cats, he added. But he thought better of it. It occurred to him that people needed to believe things. The wolf howled again, so near that Mort looked around apprehensively. Another one across the valley answered it. The chorus was picked up by a couple of others in the depths of the forest. Mort had never heard anything so mournful. He glanced sideways at the still figure of Goody Hamstring, and then, with mounting panic, at the hourglass. He sprang to his feet, snatched up the scythe, and brought it around in a two-handed swing. The witch stood up, leaving her body behind. "'Well done,' she said. "'I thought you'd missed it for a minute there.' Mort leaned against a tree, panting heavily, and watched Goody walk around the log to look at herself. "'Mmm,' she said critically. Time has got a lot to answer for. She raised her hand and laughed to see the stars through it. Then she changed. Mort had seen this happen before, when the soul realised it was no longer bound by the body's morphic field, but never under such control. Her hair unwound itself from its tight bun, changing colour and lengthening. Her body straightened up, wrinkles dwindled and vanished. Her grey woollen dress moved like the surface of the sea and ended up tracing entirely different and disturbing contours. She looked down, giggled, and changed the dress into something leaf-green and clingy. "'What do you think, Mort?' she said. Her voice had sounded cracked and quavery before. Now it suggested musk and maple syrup and other things that set Mort's Adam's apple bobbing like a rubber ball on an elastic band. "'Oh?' he managed, and gripped the scythe until his knuckles went white. She walked towards him like a snake in a four-wheel drift. "'I didn't hear you,' she purred. Uh, "'Very nice,' he said. "'Is that who you were?' "'It's who I've always been.' "'Oh!' Mort stared at his feet. "'I'm supposed to take you away,' he said. "'I know,' she said. "'But I'm going to stay.' 
you can't do that. I mean, he fumbled for words. You see, if you stay, you sort of spread out and get thinner until... I shall enjoy it, she said firmly. She leaned forward and gave him a kiss as insubstantial as a mayfly's sigh, fading as she did so until only the kiss was left, just like a Cheshire cat, only much more erotic. Have a care, Mort, said her voice in his head. You may want to hold on to your job, but will you ever be able to let go? Mort stood idiotically holding his cheek. The trees around the clearing trembled for a moment. There was the sound of laughter on the breeze, and then the freezing silence closed in again. Duty called out to him through the pink mists in his head. He grabbed the second glass and stared at it. The sand was nearly all gone. The glass itself was patterned with lotus petals. When Mort flicked it with his finger, it went, Hum! He ran across the crackling snow to Binky and hurled himself into the saddle. The horse threw up his head, reared, and launched itself towards the stars. Great silent streamers of blue and green flame hung from the roof of the world. Curtains of octarine glow danced slowly and majestically over the disc as the fire of the aurora coriolis, the vast discharge of magic from the disc's standing field, earthed itself in the green ice mountains of the hub. The central spire of Cori Celesti, home of the gods, was a ten-mile-high column of cold, coruscating fire. It was a sight seen by few people, and Mort wasn't one of them, because he lay low over Binky's neck and clung on for his life as they pounded through the night sky, ahead of a comet trail of steam. There were other mountains clustered around Cory. By comparison, they were no more than termite mounds, although in reality each one was a majestic assortment of coals, ridges, faces, cliffs, screes and glaciers that any normal mountain range would be happy to associate with. Among the highest of them, at the end of a funnel-shaped valley, dwelt the Listeners. They were one of the oldest of the Disc's religious sects. Although even the gods themselves were divided as to whether listening was really a proper religion, and all that prevented their temple being wiped out by a few well-aimed avalanches was the fact that even the gods were curious as to what it was that the Listeners might hear. If there's one thing that really annoys a god, it's not knowing something. It'll take Mort several minutes to arrive, a row of dots would fill in the time nicely, but the reader will already be noticing the strange shape of the temple, curled like a great white ammonite at the end of the valley, and will probably want an explanation. The fact is that the listeners are trying to work out precisely what it was that the Creator said when he made the universe. The theory is quite straightforward. Clearly, nothing that the Creator makes could ever be destroyed, which means that the echoes of those first syllables must still be around somewhere, bouncing and rebounding off all the matter in the cosmos, but still audible to a really good listener. Eons ago, the listeners had found that ice and chance had carved this one valley into the perfect acoustic opposite of an echo valley and had built their multi-chambered temple in the exact position that the one comfy chair always occupies in the home of a rabid hi-fi fanatic. Complex baffles caught and amplified the sound that was funnelled up the Chile Valley, steering it ever inwards to the central chamber, where at any hour of the day or night, three monks always sat, listening. There were certain problems caused by the fact that they didn't hear only the subtle echoes of the first words, but every other sound made on the disc. In order to recognise the sound of the words, they had to learn to recognise all the other noises. This called for a certain talent, and a novice was only accepted for training if he could distinguish by sound alone, at a distance of a thousand yards, which side a dropped coin landed. 
He wasn't actually accepted into the order until he could tell what colour it was. And although the holy listeners were so remote, many people took the extremely long and dangerous path to their temple, travelling through frozen troll-haunted lands, fording swift icy rivers, climbing forbidding mountains, trekking across inhospitable tundra in order to climb the narrow stairway that led into the hidden valley and seek with an open heart the secret of being. And the monks would cry unto them, Keep the bloody noise down! Binky came through the mountain tops like a white blur, touching down in the snowy emptiness of a courtyard made spectral by the disco light from the sky. Mort leapt from his back and ran through the silent cloisters to the room where the 88th abbot lay dying, surrounded by his devout followers. Mort's footsteps boomed as he hurried across the intricate mosaic floor. The monks themselves wore woollen overshoes. He reached the bed and waited for a moment, leaning on the scythe until he could get his breath back. The abbot, who was small and totally bald and had more wrinkles than a sackful of prunes, opened his eyes. "'You're late,' he whispered and died. Mort swallowed, fought for breath, and brought the scythe around in a slow arc. Nevertheless, it was accurate enough. The abbot sat up, leaving his corpse behind. "'Not a moment too soon,' he said in a voice only Mort could hear. "'You had me worried for a moment there.' "'Okay,' said Mort. "'Only I've got a rush.' The abbot swung himself off the bed and walked towards Mort through the ranks of his bereaved followers. "'Don't rush off,' he said. "'I always look forward to these talks.' What's happened to the usual fellow? Usual fellow? said Mort, bewildered. Tall chap. Black cloak. Doesn't get enough to eat by the look of him, said the abbot. Usual fellow? You mean death? said Mort. That's him, said the abbot cheerfully. Mort's mouth hung open. Die a lot, do you? he managed. A fair bit, fair bit, of course, said the abbot. Once you get the hang of it, it's only a matter of practice. It is. We must be off, said the abbot. Mort's mouth snapped shut. That's what I've been trying to say, he said. So if you could just drop me off down in the valley. The little monk continued placidly. He swept past Mort and headed for the courtyard. Mort stared at the floor for a moment and then ran after him in a way which he knew to be extremely unprofessional and undignified. No, look, he began. The other one had a horse called Binky, I remember, said the abbot pleasantly. Did you buy the round of him? The round? said Mort, now completely lost. Or whatever. Forgive me, said the abbot. I don't really know how these things are organised, lad. Mort, said Mort absently. And I think you're supposed to come back with me, sir, if you don't mind, he added, in what he hoped was a firm and authoritative manner. The monk turned and smiled pleasantly at him. I wish I could, he said. Perhaps one day. Now, if you could give me a lift as far as the nearest village, I imagine I'm being conceived about now. Conceived? But you've just died, said Mort. Yes, but you see, I have what you might call a season ticket, the abbot explained. A light dawned on Mort, but very slowly. Oh, he said, I've read about this. Reincarnation, yes? That's the word. Fifty-three times so far, or fifty-four. Binky looked up as they approached and gave a short neigh of recognition when the abbot patted his nose. Mort mounted up and helped the abbot up behind him. It must be very interesting, he said, as Binky climbed away from the temple. On the absolute scale of small talk, this comment must rate minus quite a lot, but Mort couldn't think of anything better. No, it mustn't, said the abbot. You think it must be because you believe I can remember all my lives, but of course I can't. Not while I'm alive, anyway. I hadn't thought of that, 
Mort conceded. Imagine toilet training fifty times. Nothing to look back on, I imagine, said Mort. You're right. If I had my time all over again, I wouldn't reincarnate. And just when I'm getting the hang of things, the lads come down from the temple looking for a boy conceived at the hour the old abbot died. Talk about unimaginative. Uh, stop here a moment, please. Mort looked down. We're in mid-air, he said doubtfully. I won't keep you a moment. The abbot slid down from Binky's back, walked a few steps on thin air and shouted. It seemed to go on for a long time. Then the abbot climbed back again. You don't know how long I've been looking forward to that, he said. There was a village in a lower valley a few miles from the temple which acted as a sort of service industry. From the air it was a random scattering of small but extremely well soundproofed huts. Anywhere will do, the abbot said. Mort left him standing a few feet above the snow at a point where the huts appeared to be thickest. Hope the next lifetime improves, he said. The abbot shrugged. One can always hope, he said. I get a nine-month break anyway. The scenery isn't much, but at least it's in the warm. Boy, then, said Mort. I've got a rush. Au revoir, said the abbot sadly and turned away. The fires of the hub lights were still casting their flickering illumination across the landscape. Mort sighed and reached for the third glass. The container was silver, decorated with small crowns. There was hardly any sand left. Mort, feeling that the night had thrown everything at him and couldn't get any worse, turned it around carefully to get a glimpse of the name. Princess Ke Li awoke. There had been a sound like someone making no noise at all. Forget peas and mattresses, sheer natural selection had established over the years that the royal families that survived longest were those whose members could distinguish an assassin in the dark by the noise he was clever enough not to make, because in court circles there was always someone ready to cut the air with a knife. She lay in bed wondering what to do next. There was a dagger under her pillow. She started to slide one hand up the sheets while peering around the room with half-closed eyes in search of unfamiliar shadows. She was well aware that if she indicated in any way that she was not asleep, she would never wake up again. Some light came into the room from the big window at the far end, but the suits of armour, tapestries and assorted paraphernalia that littered the room could have provided cover for an army. The knife had dropped down behind the bedhead. She probably wouldn't have used it properly anyway. Screaming for the guards, she decided, was not a good idea. If there was anyone in the room, then the guards must have been overpowered, or at least stunned by a large sum of money. There was a warming pan on the flagstones by the fire. Would it make a weapon? There was a faint, metallic sound. Perhaps screaming wouldn't be such a bad idea after all. The window imploded. For an instant, Ke Li saw, framed against a hell of blue and purple flames, a hooded figure crouched on the back of the largest horse she had ever seen. There was someone standing by the bed, with a knife half-raised. In slow motion she watched, fascinated, as the arm went up and the horse galloped at glacier speed across the floor. Now the knife was above her, starting its descent, and the horse was rearing, and the rider was standing in the stirrups and swinging some sort of weapon, and its blade tore through the slow air with a noise like a finger on the rim of a wet glass. The light vanished. There was a soft thump on the floor, followed by a metallic clatter. Ke Li took a deep breath. A hand was briefly laid across her mouth, and a worried voice said, If you scream, I'll regret it. Please, I'm in enough trouble as it is. Anyone who could get that amount of bewildered pleading into their voice was either genuine or such a good actor they wouldn't have to bother with assassination for a living. 
she said. Who are you? I don't know if I'm allowed to tell you, said the voice. You are still alive, aren't you? She bit down the sarcastic reply just in time. Something about the tone of the question worried her. Can't you tell, she said. It's not easy. There was a pause. She strained to see in the darkness to put a face around that voice. I may have done you some terrible harm, it added. Haven't you just saved my life? I don't know what I have saved, actually. Is there some light around here? The maid sometimes leaves matches on the mantelpiece, said Carely. She felt the presence beside her move away. There were a few hesitant footsteps, a couple of thumps, and finally a clang, although the word isn't sufficient to describe the real ripe cacophony of falling metal that filled the room. It was even followed by the traditional little tinkle a couple of seconds after you thought it was all over. The voice said, rather indistinctly, I'm under a suit of armour. Where should I be? Care Lee slid quietly out of the bed, felt her way towards the fireplace, located the bundle of matches by the faint light from the dying fire, struck one in a burst of sulphurous smoke, lit a candle, found the pile of dismembered armour, pulled its sword from its scabbard, and then nearly swallowed her tongue. Someone had just blown hot and wetly in her ear. That's Binky, said the heap. He's just trying to be friendly. I expect he'd like some hay, if you've got any. With royal self-control, Care Lee said, This is the fourth floor. It's a lady's bedroom. You'd be amazed how many horses we don't get up here. Oh, could you help me up, please? She put the sword down and pulled aside a breastplate. A thin white face stared back at her. First, you'd better tell me why I shouldn't send for the guards anyway, she said. Even being in my bedroom, you could get tortured to death. She glared at him. Finally, he said, Well, could you let my hand free, please? Thank you. Firstly, the guards probably wouldn't see me. Second, you'll never find out why I'm here, and you look as though you'd hate not to know. And thirdly... Thirdly what? she said. His mouth opened and shut. Mort wanted to say, Thirdly, you're so beautiful, or at least very attractive, or anyway, far more attractive than any other girl I've ever met, although, admittedly, I haven't met very many. From this it will be seen that Mort's innate honesty will never make him a poet. If Mort ever compared a girl to a summer's day, it would be followed by a thoughtful explanation of what day he had in mind and whether it was raining at the time. In the circumstances, it was just as well that he couldn't find his voice. Care Lee held up the candle and looked at the window. It was whole. The stone frames were unbroken. Every pane with its stained glass representatives of the Stolart coat of arms was complete. She looked back at Mort. Never mind thirdly, she said. Let's get back to secondly. An hour later, dawn reached the city. Daylight on the disc flows rather than rushes because light is slowed right down by the world's standing magical field and it rolled across the flat lands like a golden sea. The city on the mound stood out like a sandcastle in the tide for a moment until the day swirled around it and crept onwards. Mort and Kay Lee sat side by side on her bed. The hourglass lay between them. There was no sand left in the top bulb. From outside came the sounds of the castle waking up. I still don't understand this, she said. Does it mean I'm dead or doesn't it? It means you ought to be dead, he said. According to fate or whatever, I haven't really studied the theory. And you should have killed me? No, I mean, no, the assassin should have killed you. 
I did try to explain all that, said Mort. Why didn't you let him? Mort looked at her in horror. Did you want to die? Of course I didn't, but it looks as though what people want doesn't come into it, does it? I'm trying to be sensible about this. Mort stared at his knees, then he stood up. I think I'd better be going, he said coldly. He folded up the scythe and stuck it into its sheath behind the saddle. Then he looked at the window. You came through that, said Kay Lee helpfully. Look, when I said, does it open? No, there's a balcony along the passage, but people will see you. Mort ignored her, pulled open the door and led Binky out into the corridor. Kay Lee ran after them. A maid stopped, curtsied and frowned slightly as her brain wisely dismissed the sight of a very large horse walking along the carpet. The balcony overlooked one of the inner courtyards. Mort glanced over the parapet and then mounted. Watch out for the Duke, he said. He's behind all this. My father always warned me about him, said the princess. I've got a food taster. You should get a bodyguard as well, said Mort. I must go. I have important things to do. Farewell, he added, in what he hoped was the right tone of injured pride. Shall I see you again, said Kelly. There's lots I want to... That might not be a good idea if you think about it, said Mort haughtily. He clicked his tongue, and Binky leapt into the air, cleared the parapet and cantered up into the blue morning sky. I wanted to say thank you, Kaylee yelled after him. The maid, who couldn't get over the feeling that something was wrong and had followed her, said, Are you all right, ma'am? Kaylee looked at her distractedly. What? she demanded. I just wondered if everything was all right. Kaylee's shoulders sagged. No, she said. Everything's all wrong. There's a dead assassin in my bedroom. Could you please have something done about it? And, she held up a hand, I don't want you to say, Dead, ma'am, or assassin, ma'am, or scream or anything. I just want you to get something done about it, quietly. I think I've got a headache, so just nod. The maid nodded, bobbed uncertainly, and backed away. Mort wasn't sure how he got back. The sky simply changed from ice blue to sullen grey as Binky eased himself into the gap between dimensions. He didn't land on the dark soil of Death's estate, it was simply there, underfoot, as though an aircraft carrier had gently manoeuvred itself under a jump jet to save the pilot all the trouble of touching down. The great horse trotted into the stable yard and halted outside the double door, swishing his tail. Mort slid off and ran for the house, and stopped and ran back, and filled the hay rack and ran for the house, and stopped and muttered to himself and ran back and rubbed the horse down and checked the water bucket and ran for the house, and ran back and fetched the horse blanket down from its hook on the wall and buckled it on. Binky gave him a dignified nuzzle. No one seemed to be about as Mort slipped in by the back door and made his way to the library, where even at this time of night the air seemed to be made of hot, dry dust. It seemed to take years to locate Princess Kay Lee's biography, but he found it eventually. It was a depressingly slim volume, on a shelf only reachable by the library ladder, a wheeled rickety structure that strongly resembled an early siege engine. With trembling fingers he opened it at the last page and groaned. The princess's assassination at the age of fifteen, he read, was followed by the union of Stolat with Stohelit, and indirectly the collapse of the city-states of the Central Plain and the rise of... He read on, unable to stop. Occasionally he groaned again. Finally he put the book back, hesitated, and then shoved it behind a few other volumes. He could still feel it there as he climbed down the ladder, shrieking its incriminating existence to the world. 
There were few ocean-going ships on the disc. No captain liked to venture out of sight of a coastline. It was a sorry fact that ships which looked from a distance as though they were going over the edge of the world weren't in fact disappearing over the horizon, they were in fact dropping over the edge of the world. Every generation or so, a few enthusiastic explorers doubted this and set out to prove it wrong. Strangely enough, none of them had ever come back to announce the result of their researches. The following analogy would therefore have been meaningless to Mort. He felt as if he'd been shipwrecked on the Titanic, but in the nick of time had been rescued by the Lusitania. He felt as though he'd thrown a snowball on the spur of the moment and watched the ensuing avalanche engulf three ski resorts. He felt history unravelling all around him. He felt he needed someone to talk to quickly. That had to mean either Albert or Isabel, because the thought of explaining everything to those tiny blue pinpoints was not one he cared to contemplate after a long night. On the rare occasions Isabel deigned to look in his direction, she made it clear that the only difference between Mort and a dead toad was the colour. As for Albert, all right, not the perfect confidant, but definitely the best in a field of one. Mort slid down the steps and threaded his way back through the bookshelves. A few hours' sleep would be a good idea, too. Then he heard a gasp, the brief patter of running feet and the slam of a door. When he peered around the nearest bookcase, there was nothing there except a stool with a couple of books on it. He picked one up and glanced at the name, then read a few pages. There was a damp lace handkerchief lying next to it. Mort rose late and hurried towards the kitchen, expecting at any moment the deep tones of disapproval. Nothing happened. Albert was at the stone sink, gazing thoughtfully at his chip pan, probably wondering whether it was time to change the fat or let it bide for another year. He turned as Mort slid into a chair. "'You had a busy time of it, then,' he said, "'gallivanting all over the place until all hours, I heard. "'I could do you an egg, or there's porridge.' "'Egg, please,' said Mort. "'He'd never plucked up the courage to try Albert's porridge, "'which led a private life of its own in the depths of its saucepan, "'and ate spoons. "'The master wants to see you after,' Albert added but he said you wasn't to rush. Oh, Mort stared at the table. Did he say anything else? He said he hadn't had an evening off in a thousand years, said Albert. He was humming. I don't like it. I've never seen him like this. Oh, Mort took the plunge. Albert, have you been here long? Albert looked at him over the top of his spectacles. Maybe, he said. It's hard to keep track of outside time, boy. I've been here since just after the old king died. Which king, Albert? Arthur Rollo, I think he was called. Little fat man, squeaky voice. I only saw him the once, though. Where was this? In Ark, of course. What? said Mort. They don't have kings in Ankh-Morpork. pork. Everyone knows that. Uh, this was back a bit, I said, said Albert. He poured himself a cup of tea from Death's personal teapot and sat down, a dreamy look in his crusted eyes. Mort waited expectantly. And they was kings in those days, real kings. Not like the sort you get now. They was monarchs, continued Albert, carefully pouring some tea into his saucer and fanning it primly with the end of his muffler. I mean, they was wise and fair, well, fairly wise, and they wouldn't think twice about cutting your head off soon as look at you, he added approvingly. 
and all the queens were tall and pale and wore them balaclava helmet things. Wimples, said Mort. Yeah, them. And the princesses were beautiful as the day is long and so noble they could pee through a dozen mattresses. What? Albert hesitated. Something like that, anyway, he conceded. And there was balls and tournaments and executions. Great days. He smiled dreamily at his memories. Not like the sort of days you get now, he said, emerging from his reverie with bad grace. Have you got any other names, Albert? said Mort. But the brief spell had been broken and the old man wasn't going to be drawn. Oh, I know, he snapped. Get Albert's name and you'll go and look him up in the library, won't you? Prying and poking, I know you, skulking in there at all hours, reading the lives of young women. The heralds of guilt must have flourished their tarnished trumpets in the depths of Mort's eyes, because Albert cackled and prodded him with a bony finger. You might at least put them back where you find them, he said, not leave piles of them around for old Albert to put back. Anyway, it's not right. Ogling the poor dead things probably turns you blind. But I only... Mort began and remembered the damp lace handkerchief in his pocket and shut up. He left Albert grumbling to himself and doing the washing up and slipped into the library. Pale sunlight lanced down from the high windows, gently fading the covers on the patient ancient volumes. Occasionally a speck of dust would catch the light as it floated through the golden shafts and flare like a miniature supernova. Mort knew that if he listened hard enough, he could hear the insect-like scritching of the books as they wrote themselves. Once upon a time, Mort would have found it eerie. Now it was reassuring. It demonstrated that the universe was running smoothly. His conscience, which had been looking for the opening, gleefully reminded him that, all right, it might be running smoothly, but it certainly wasn't heading in the right direction. He made his way through the maze of shelves to the mysterious pile of books and found it was gone. Albert had been in the kitchen, and Mort had never seen Death himself enter the library. What was Isabel looking for, then? He glanced up at the cliff of shelves above him, and his stomach went cold when he thought of what was starting to happen. There was nothing for it. He'd have to tell someone. Kelly, meanwhile, was also finding life difficult. This was because causality had an incredible amount of inertia. Mort's misplaced thrust, driven by anger and desperation and nascent love, had sent it down a new track, but it hadn't noticed yet. He'd kicked the tail of the dinosaur, but it would be some time before the other end realised it was time to say ouch. Bluntly, the universe knew Kelly was dead and was therefore rather surprised to find that she hadn't stopped walking and breathing yet. It showed in little ways. The courtiers who gave her furtive-odd looks during the morning would not have been able to say why the sight of her made them feel strangely uncomfortable. To their acute embarrassment and her annoyance, they found themselves ignoring her or talking in hushed voices. The Chamberlain found he'd instructed that the royal standard be flown at half-mast, and for the life of him couldn't explain why. He was gently led off to his bed with a mild nervous affliction, after ordering a thousand yards of black bunting for no apparent reason. The eerie, unreal feeling soon spread throughout the castle. The head coachman ordered a state beer to be brought out again and polished, and then stood in the stable yard and wept into his chamois leather because he couldn't remember why. 
Servants walked softly along the corridors. The cook had to fight an overpowering urge to prepare simple banquets of cold meat. Dogs howled and then stopped, feeling rather stupid. The two black stallions who traditionally pulled the Stolat funeral cortege grew restive in their stalls and nearly kicked a groom to death. In his castle in Stowhelit, the Duke waited in vain for a messenger who had in fact set out, but had stopped halfway down the street, unable to remember what it was he was supposed to be doing. Through all this, Ke Lee moved like a solid and increasingly more irritated ghost. Things came to a head at lunchtime. She swept into the great hall and found no place had been set in front of the royal chair. By speaking loudly and distinctly to the butler, she managed to get that rectified, then saw dishes being passed in front of her before she could get a fork into them. She watched in sullen disbelief as the wine was brought in and poured first for the lord of the privy closet. It was an unregal thing to do, but she stuck out a foot and tripped the wine-waiter. He stumbled, muttered something under his breath, and stared down at the flagstones. She leaned the other way and shouted into the ear of the yeoman of the pantry. "'Can you see me, man? Why are we reduced to eating cold pork and ham?' He turned aside from his hushed conversation with the lady of the small hexagonal room in the north turret, gave her a long look in which shock made way for a sort of unfocused puzzlement, and said, "'Ah, uh, why, uh, yes, I, I, I can. Um, uh, "'Your Royal Highness,' prompted Cayley, but, uh, oh, yes, uh, uh, Highness, he muttered. There was a heavy pause. Then, as if switched back on, he turned his back on her and resumed his conversation. Kelly sat for a while, white with shock and anger, then pushed the chair back and stormed away to her chambers. A couple of servants, sharing a quick roll-up in the passage outside, were knocked sideways by something they couldn't quite see. Kelly ran into her room and hauled on the rope that should have sent the duty maid running in from the sitting room at the end of the corridor. Nothing happened for some time, and then the door was pushed open slowly, and a face peered in at her. She recognised the look this time, and was ready for it. She grabbed the maid by the shoulders, and hauled her bodily into the room, slamming the door shut behind her. As the frightened woman stared everywhere but at Cayley, she hauled off and fetched her a stinging slap across the cheek. "'Did you feel that? Did you feel it?' she shrieked. "'But, um, you, uh, I, who?' The maid whimpered, staggering backwards until she hit the bed and sitting down heavily on it. "'Look at me! Look at me when I talk to you!' yelled Kelly, advancing on her. "'You can see me, can't you? Tell me you can see me or I'll have you executed!' The maid stared into her terrified eyes. "'I can see you,' she said. "'But—' "'But what? But what? Surely I heard—' "'I thought—' "'What did you think?' snapped Kelly. She wasn't shouting anymore. Her words came out like white-hot whips. The maid collapsed into a sobbing heap. Cayley stood tapping her foot for a moment and then shook the woman gently. "'Is there a wizard in the city?' she said. "'Look at me. At me. There's a wizard, isn't there? You girls are always skulking off to talk to wizards. Where does he live?' The woman turned a tear-stained face towards her, fighting against every instinct that told her the princess didn't exist. "'Um, wizard.' Yes, uh, Cutwell, in Wall Street. Kelly's lips compressed into a thin smile. She wondered where her cloaks were kept, but cold reason told her it was going to be a damn sight easier to find them herself than try to make her presence felt to the maid. She waited, watching closely, as the woman stopped sobbing, looked around her in vague bewilderment, and hurried out of the room. She's forgotten me already, she thought. She looked at her hands. She seemed solid enough. 
It had to be magic. She wandered into her robing room and experimentally opened a few cupboards until she found a black cloak and a hood. She slipped them on and darted out into the corridor and down the servants' stairs. She hadn't been this way since she was little. This was the world of linen cupboards, bare floors, and dumb waiters. It smelled of slightly stale crusts. Kelly moved through it like an earthbound spook. She was aware of the servants' quarters, of course, in the same way that people are aware at some level in their minds of the drains or the guttering, and she would be quite prepared to concede that although servants all looked pretty much alike, they must have some distinguishing features by which their nearest and dearest could presumably identify them. But she was not prepared for sights like Moghedron, the wine-butler, whom she had hitherto seen only as a stately presence moving like a galleon under full sail, sitting in his pantry with his jacket undone and smoking a pipe. A couple of maids ran past her without a second glance, giggling. She hurried on, aware that in some strange way she was trespassing in her own castle. And that, she realised, was because it wasn't her castle at all. The noisy world around her, with its steaming laundries and chilly still rooms, was its own world. She couldn't own it. Possibly it owned her. She took a chicken leg from the table in the biggest kitchen, a cavern lined with so many pots that by the light of its fires it looked like an armoury for tortoises, and felt the unfamiliar thrill of theft. Theft in her own kingdom. And the cook looked straight through her, eyes as glazed as jugged ham. Kelly ran across the stable yards and out of the back gate past a couple of sentries whose stern gaze quite failed to notice her. Out in the streets it wasn't so creepy, but she still felt oddly naked. It was unnerving being among people who were going about their own affairs and not bothering to look at one when one's entire experience of the world hitherto was that it revolved around one. Pedestrians bumped into one and rebounded away, wondering briefly what it was they'd hit, and one several times had to scurry out of the way of the path of wagons. The chicken leg hadn't gone far to fill the hole left by the absence of lunch, and she filched a couple of apples from a stall, making a mental note to have the Chamberlain find out how much apples cost and send some money down to the stallholder. Dishevelled, rather grubby, and smelling slightly of horse dung, she came at last to Cutwell's door. The knocker gave her some trouble. In her experience, doors opened for you. There were special people to arrange it. She was so distraught she didn't even notice that the knocker winked at her. She tried again, and thought she heard a distant crash. After some time, the door opened a few inches, and she caught a glimpse of a round, flustered face, topped with curly hair. Her right foot surprised her by intelligently inserting itself in the crack. "'I demand to see the wizard,' she announced. "'Pray admit me this instant.' "'He's rather busy at present,' said the face. "'Were you after a love potion?' "'A what?' I've, we've got uh, special on Cutwell's shield of passion ointment, said the face, and winked in a startling fashion. Provides your wild oats while guaranteeing a crop failure, if you know what I mean. Kelly bridled. No, she lied coldly. I do not. Ram rub, maiden's long stop, belladonna eye drops. I demand. Sorry, we're closed, said the face and shut the door. Kelly withdrew her foot just in time. She muttered some words that would have amazed and shocked her tutors, and thumped on the woodwork. The tattoo of her hammering suddenly slowed as realisation dawned. He'd seen her, he'd heard her. She beat on the door with renewed vigour, yelling with all the power in her lungs. A voice by her ear said, It won't work. He is very stubborn. She looked around slowly and met the impertinent gaze of the door-knocker. 
It waggled its metal eyebrows at her and spoke indistinctly through its wrought iron ring. I am Princess Kaylee, heir to the throne of Stolat, she said haughtily, holding down the lid on her terror, and I don't talk to door furniture. Well, I'm just a door knocker, and I can talk to whoever I please, said the gargoyle pleasantly, and I can tell you the master is having a trying day and doth not want to be disturbed, but you could try to use the magic word, it added. Coming from a detractive woman, it works nine times out of eight. Magic word? What's the magic word? The knocker perceptibly sneered. Have you been taught nothing, Miff? She drew herself up to her full height, which wasn't really worth the effort. She felt she'd had a trying day too. Her father had personally executed a hundred enemies in battle. She should be able to manage a door knocker. I have been educated, she informed it with icy precision, by some of the finest scholars in the land. The door knocker did not appear to be impressed. If they didn't teach you the magic word, it said calmly, they couldn't have been all that fine. Kelly reached out, grabbed the heavy ring, and pounded it on the door. The knocker leered at her. Freak me rough, it lisped. That's the way I like it. You're disgusting. Yes. Oh, that was nice. Do it again. The door opened a crack. There was a shadowy glimpse of curly hair. Madam, I said we're closed. Kelly sagged. Please help me, she said. Please. See, said the door knocker triumphantly, sooner or later everyone remembers the magic word. Care Lee had been to official functions in Ankh Morpork and had met senior wizards from Unseen University, the Disc's premier college of magic. Some of them had been tall and most of them had been fat, and nearly all of them had been richly dressed, or at least thought they were richly dressed. In fact, there are fashions in wizardry as in more mundane arts, and this tendency to look like elderly aldermen was only temporary. Previous generations had gone in for looking pale and interesting, or druidical and grubby, or mysterious and saturnine. But Kay Lee was used to wizards as a sort of fur-trimmed small mountain with a wheezy voice, and Igneous Cutwell didn't quite fit the mage image. He was young. Well, that couldn't be helped. Presumably even wizards had to start off young. He didn't even have a beard, and the only thing his rather grubby robe was trimmed with was frayed edges. Would you like a drink or something? he said, surreptitiously kicking a discarded vest under the table. Kelly looked around for somewhere to sit that wasn't occupied with laundry or used crockery and shook her head. Cutwell noticed her expression. It's a bit al fresco, I'm afraid, he added hurriedly, elbowing the remains of a garlic sausage onto the floor. Mrs Nugent usually comes in twice a week and does for me, but she's gone to see her sister who's had one of her turns. Are you sure? It's no trouble. I saw a spare cup here only yesterday. I have a problem, Mr Cutwell said Kaylee. Hang on a moment. He reached up to a hook over the fireplace and took down a pointy hat that had seen better days, although from the look of it they hadn't been very much better, and then said, Right, fire away. What's so important about the hat? Oh, it's very essential. You've got to have the proper hat for wizarding. We wizards know about this sort of thing. If you say so. Look, can you see me? He peered at her. Yes. Yes, I would definitely say 
I can see you. And hear me? You can hear me, can you? Loud and clear, yes. Every syllable tinkling into place. No problems. Then would you be surprised if I told you that no one else in this city can? Except me? Kelly snorted. And your door knocker. Cutwell pulled out a chair and sat down. He squirmed a little. A thoughtful expression passed over his face. He stood up, reached behind him, and produced a flat reddish mass, which might have once been half a pizza. He stared at it sorrowfully. The first pizza was created on the disc by the Clatchian mystic Ron Ron Revelation Joe Shuadhi, who claimed to have been given the recipe in a dream by the creator of the disc world himself, who had apparently added that it was what he had intended all along. Those desert travellers who had seen the original, which is reputedly miraculously preserved in the forbidden city of E, say that what the creator had in mind then was a fairly small cheese and pepperoni affair with a few black olives and things like mountains and seas got added out of last-minute enthusiasm, as so often happens. After the schism of the turn-wise ones and the deaths of some 25,000 people in the ensuing jihad, the faithful were allowed to add one small bay leaf to the recipe. I've been looking for that all morning, would you believe, he said. It was an all-on with extra peppers, too. He picked sadly at the squashed shape and suddenly remembered Kay Lee. Gosh, sorry, he said. Where's my manners? Whatever will you think of me? Here, have an anchovy, please. Have you been listening to me? snapped Kaylee. Do you feel invisible? In yourself, I mean, said Cutwell, indistinctly. Of course not. I just feel angry, so I want you to tell my fortune. Oh, well, I don't know about that. It all sounds rather medical to me, and I can pay. It's illegal, you see, said Cutwell wretchedly. The old king expressly forbade fortune-telling in Stolat. He didn't like wizards much. I can pay a lot. Mrs Nugent was telling me this new girl is likely to be worse. A right haughty one, she said. Not the sort to look kindly on practitioners of the subtle arts, I fear. Kaylee smiled. Members of the court who had seen that smile before would have hastened to drag Cutwell out of the way and into a place of safety, like the next continent, but he just sat there trying to pick bits of mushroom out of his robe. I understand she's got a foul temper on her, said Kaylee. I wouldn't be surprised if she didn't turn you out of the city anyway. Oh dear, said Cutwell. You really think so? Look, said Cayley, you don't have to tell my future, just my present. Even she couldn't object to that. I'll have a word with her if you like, she added magnanimously. Cutwell brightened. Oh, do you know her? he said. Yes, but sometimes I think not very well. Cutwell sighed and burrowed around in the debris on the table, dislodging cascades of elderly plates and the long mummified remains of several meals. Eventually he unearthed a fat leather wallet, stuck to a cheese slice. Well, he said doubtfully, these are the Karok cards, distilled wisdom of the ancients and all that, or there's the Ching Aling of the Hublandish. It's all the rage in the smart sect. I don't do tea leaves. I'll try the Ching thing. You throw these yarrow stalks in the air, then. She did. They looked at the ensuing pattern. Hmm, said Cutwell after a while. Well, that's one in the fireplace, one in the cocoa mug, and one in the street. Shame about the window. 
one on the table and one, oh no, two behind the dresser. I expect Mrs Nugent will be able to find the rest. You didn't say how hard. Shall I do it again? No, I don't think so. Cutwell thumbed through the pages of a yellowed book that had previously been supporting the table leg. The pattern seems to make sense. Yes, here we are. Octogram 8887. Illegality. The unatoning goose. Which we cross-reference here. Hold on, hold on. Yes, got it. Well, without verticality, wisely the cochineal emperor goes forth at tea-time. At evening, the mollusk is silent among the almond blossom. Yes, said Cayley, respectfully. What does that mean? Unless you're a mollusk, probably not a lot, said Cutwell. I think perhaps it lost something in translation. Are you sure you know how to do this? Let's try the cards, said Cutwell hurriedly, fanning them out. Pick a card, any card. It's death, said Cayley. Ah, well, of course. The death card doesn't actually mean death in all circumstances, Cutwell said quickly. You mean it doesn't mean death in those circumstances where the subject is getting overexcited and you're too embarrassed to tell the truth, hm? Look, take another card. This one's death as well, said Cayley. Did you put the other one back? No. Shall I take another card? May as well. Well, there's a coincidence. Death number three? Right. Is this a special pack for conjuring tricks? Cayley tried to sound composed, but even she could detect the faint tinkle of hysteria in her voice. Cutwell frowned at her and carefully put the cards back in the pack, shuffled it, and dealt them out onto the table. There was only one death. Oh dear, he said. I think this is going to be serious. May I see the palm of your hand, please? He examined it for a long time. After a while, he went to the dresser, took a jeweller's eyeglass out of a drawer, wiped the porridge off it with the sleeve of his robe, and spent another few minutes examining her hand in minutest detail. Eventually, he sat back, removed the glass, and stared at her. You're dead, he said. Kaylee waited. She couldn't think of any suitable reply. I'm not, lacked a certain style, while is it serious seemed somehow too frivolous. Did I say I thought this was going to be serious? said Cutwell. I think you did, said Kaylee carefully, keeping her tone totally level. I was right. Oh, it could be fatal. How much more fatal, said Kaylee, than being dead? I didn't mean for you. Oh, something very fundamental seems to have gone wrong, you see. You're dead in every sense, but the, um, actual. I mean, the cards think you're dead. Your lifeline thinks you're dead. Everything and everyone thinks you're dead. I don't, said Kelly, but her voice was less than confident. I'm afraid your opinion doesn't count. But people can see and hear me. The first thing you learn when you enrol at Unseen University, I'm afraid, is that people don't pay much attention to that sort of thing. It's what the minds tell them that's important. You mean people don't see me because their minds tell them not to? Afraid so. It's called predestination or something. Cutwell looked at her wretchedly. I'm a wizard. We know about these things. Actually, it's not the first thing you learn when you enrol, he added. I mean, you learn where the lavatories are and all that sort of thing before that. But after that, it's the first thing. You can see me, though. Ah, well, wizards are specially trained to see things that are there and not to see things that aren't. 
You get these special exercises. Kelly drummed her fingers on the table, or tried to. It turned out to be difficult. She stared down in vague horror. Cutwell hurried forward and wiped the table with his sleeve. Sorry, he muttered. I had treacle sandwiches for supper last night. What can I do? Nothing. Nothing? Well, you could certainly become a very successful burglar. Sorry, that was tasteless of me. I thought so. Cutwell patted her ineptly on the hand, and Cayley was too preoccupied even to notice such flagrant les majesté. You see, everything's fixed. History's all worked out from start to finish. What the facts actually are is beside the point. History just rolls straight over the top of them. You can't change anything because the changes are already part of it. You're dead. It's fated. You'll just have to accept it. He gave an apologetic grin. You're a lot luckier than most dead people, if you look at it objectively, he said. You're alive to enjoy it. I don't want to accept it. Why should I accept it? It's not my fault. You don't understand. History is moving on. You can't get involved in it any more. There isn't a part in it for you, don't you see? Best to let things take their course. He patted her hand again. She looked at him. He withdrew his hand. What am I supposed to do then, she said. Not eat because the food wasn't destined to be eaten by me. Go and live in a crypt somewhere. Bit of a poser, isn't it? Agreed Cutwell. That's fate for you, I'm afraid. If the world can't sense you, you don't exist. I'm a wizard, we know. Don't say it. Kaylee stood up. Five generations ago, one of her ancestors had halted his band of nomadic cutthroats a few miles from the mound of Stolat and had regarded the sleeping city with a peculiarly determined expression that said, This'll do. Just because you're born in the saddle doesn't mean you have to die in the bloody thing. Strangely enough, many of his distinctive features had, by a trick of heredity, been bequeathed to his descendant, accounting for her rather idiosyncratic attractiveness. Although not the droopy moustache and round furry hat with the spike on it. They were never more apparent than now. Even Cutwell was impressed. When it came to determination, you could have cracked rocks on her jaw. In exactly the same tone of voice that her ancestor had used when he addressed his weary, sweaty followers before the attack, she said, No, no, I'm not going to accept it. I'm not going to dwindle into some sort of ghost. You're going to help me, wizard. The speech has been passed on to later generations in an epic poem commissioned by his son, who wasn't born in a saddle and could eat with a knife and fork. It began, See yonder the stolid foeman slumber... Fat with stolen gold, corrupt of mind. Let the spears of your wrath be as the step fire on a windy day and in dry season. Let your honest blade thrust like the horns of a five-year-old yock with severe toothache. And went on for three hours. Reality, which can't usually afford to pay poets, records that, in fact, the entire speech ran, Lads, most of them are still in bed. We should go through them like gzack fruit through a short grandmother, and I, for one, have had it right up to here with yurts, okay? Cutwell's subconscious recognised that tone. It had harmonics in it that made even the woodworm in the floorboards stop what they were doing and stand to attention. It wasn't voicing an opinion. It was saying, things will be thus. Me, madam, he quavered, I don't see what I can possibly do. He was jerked off his chair and out into the street, his robes billowing around him. Kelly marched towards the palace with her shoulders set determinedly, dragging the wizard behind her like a reluctant puppy. 
It was with such a walk that mothers used to bear down on the local school when the little boy came home with a black eye. It was unstoppable. It was like the march of time. What is it you intend? Cutwell stuttered, horribly aware that there was going to be nothing he could do to resist, whatever it was. It's your lucky day, wizard. Oh, good, he said weakly. You've just been appointed Royal Recognizer. Oh, what does that entail exactly? You're going to remind everyone I'm alive. It's very simple. There's three square meals a day and your laundry done. Step lively, man. Royal, you're a wizard. I think there's something you ought to know, said the princess. There is, said Death. That was a cinematic trick adapted for print. Death wasn't talking to the princess. He was actually in his study talking to Mort. But it was quite effective, wasn't it? It probably called a fast dissolve or a cross-cut zoom or something. An industry where a senior technician is called a best boy might call it anything. And what is that? he added, winding a bit of black silk around the wicked hook in a little vice he'd clamped to his desk. Mort hesitated. Mostly this was because of fear and embarrassment, but it was also because the sight of a hooded spectre peacefully tying dry flies was enough to make anyone pause. Besides, Isabel was sitting on the other side of the room, ostensibly doing some needlework, but also watching him through a cloud of sullen disapproval. He could feel her red-rimmed eyes boring into the back of his head. Death inserted a few crow hackles and whistled a busy little tune through his teeth, not having anything else to whistle through. He looked up. Mm. They didn't go as smoothly as I thought, said Mort, standing nervously on the carpet in front of the desk. You had trouble, said Death, snipping off a few scraps of feather. Well, you see, the witch wouldn't come away, and the monk, well, he started out all over again. There's nothing to worry about there, lad. Mort, you should have worked out by now that everyone gets what they think is coming to them. It's so much neater that way. I know, sir, but that means bad people who think they're going to some sort of paradise actually do get there, and good people who fear they're going to some kind of horrible place really suffer. It doesn't seem like justice. What is it I've said you must remember when you're out on the duty? Well, you... Mm. Mort stuttered into silence. There's no justice. There's just you. Well, I... You must remember that. Yes, but... I expect it all works out properly in the end. I have never met the creator, but I'm told he's quite kindly disposed to people. Death snapped the thread and started to unwind the vice. Put such thoughts out of your mind, he added. At least the third one shouldn't have given you any trouble. This was the moment. Mort had thought about it for a long time. There was no sense in concealing it. He'd upset the whole future course of history. Such things tend to draw themselves to people's attention. Best to get it off his chest. Own up like a man. Take his medicine. Cards on table. Beating about bush, none of. Mercy, throw himself on. The piercing blue eyes glittered at him. He looked back like a nocturnal rabbit trying to outstare the headlights of a sixteen-wheeled arctic whose driver is a twelve-hour caffeine freak out running the tachometers of hell. He failed. No, sir, he said. Good. Well done. Now then, what do you think of this? Anglers reckon that a good dry fly should cunningly mimic the real thing. There are the right flies for morning, there are different flies for the evening rise, and so on. 
but the thing between death's triumphant digits was a fly from the dawn of time. It was the fly in the primordial soup. It had bred on mammoth turds. It wasn't a fly that bangs on window panes. It was a fly that drills through walls. It was an insect that would crawl out from between the slats of the heaviest swat-dripping venom and seeking revenge. Strange wings and dangling bits stuck out all over it. It seemed to have a lot of teeth. What's it called? said Mort. I shall call it Death's Glory. Death gave the thing a final admiring glance and stuck it into the hood of his robe. I feel inclined to see a little bit of life this evening, he said. You can take the duty now that you've got the hang of it, as it were. Yes, sir, said Mort mournfully. He saw his life stretching out in front of him like a nasty black tunnel with no light at the end of it. Death drummed his finger on the desk, muttered to himself. Ah, yes, he said. Albert tells me someone's been meddling in the library. Pardon, sir? Taking books out, leaving them lying around. Books about young women. He seems to think it's amusing. As has already been revealed, the holy listeners have such well-developed hearing that they can be deafened by a good sunset. Just for a few seconds, it seemed to Mort that the skin on the back of his neck was developing similar strange powers because he could see Isabel freeze in mid-stitch. He also heard the little intake of breath that he'd heard before among the shelves. He remembered the lace handkerchief. He said, Yes, sir. It won't happen again, sir. The skin on the back of his neck started to itch like fury. Splendid. Now you two can run along. Get Albert to do you a picnic lunch or something. Get some fresh air. I've noticed the way you two always avoid each other. He gave Mort a conspiratorial nudge. It was like being poked with a stick, and added, Albert's told me what that means. As he, said Mort gloomily, he'd been wrong. There was a light at the end of the tunnel, and it was a flamethrower. Death gave him another of his supernova winks. Mort didn't return it. Instead, he turned and plodded towards the door, at a general speed and gait that made Great Artuin look like a spring lamb. He was halfway along the corridor before he heard the soft rush of footsteps behind him, and a hand caught his arm. Mort? He turned and gazed at Isabel through the fog of depression. Why did you let him think it was you in the library? Don't know. It was very kind of you, she said cautiously. Was it? I can't think what came over me. He felt in his pocket and produced the handkerchief. This belongs to you, I think. Thank you. She blew her nose noisily. Mort was already well down the corridor, his shoulders hunched like a vulture's wings. She ran after him. I say, she said. What? I wanted to say thank you. It doesn't matter, he muttered. It'd just be best if you don't take books away again. It upsets them or something. He gave what he considered to be a mirthless laugh. Huh. Huh, what? Just... End of CD 3